Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, in case you were unaware, The Batman is coming to HBO Max on April 19th. But if you have the opportunity to watch it on the big screen, I would highly recommend. I know I've been saying it for months now, but I finally went out to the theater, throwing caution to the wind to watch The Batman, the latest in the franchise featuring Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. The Dark Knight, a.k.a. The Caped Crusader. Of course, the movie I decide to see is almost three hours in length. I was excited for this one the moment Matt Reeves was announced as director. He's a Long Island native born in Rockville Center, but at the age of five, his family moved out to Los Angeles. He became friends with J.J. Abrams in their teenage years, when a local public access station aired their short films. The pair were also hired by Steven Spielberg to transfer his Super 8 home movies. That's not a bad gig. He went to school at USC, the University of Southern California, where his short, Future Shock, gained the attention of agents. He would go on to co-write Under Siege 2, his first major contribution. He would direct The Pallbearer, which he co-wrote with Jason Caddams, creator of Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. But his big break would be the movie Cloverfield, which he directed. The found footage genre isn't my favorite. I felt like I needed to take Dramamine watching it. And they pushed the realm of possibilities of that camera. It was indestructible. That thing was dropped, slammed, chewed, and still managed perfect framing and rack focus. His next movie was Let Me In, with Cody Smith-McPhee and Chloe Grace Moretz. It was a remake of the Swedish film Let the Right One In, based on the novel of the same name. I listened to the director's commentary a couple of times. Great insight from him on the shots and pace. He would go on to direct Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes. Both excellent. Which brings me back to The Batman. It was fantastic. It very much reminded me of the series Gotham, which was one of my favorite shows. The mood, the tone. It's a modern-day film noir movie. It was certainly inspired by Seven, Saw, and Zodiac. There was one shot which was a direct homage to Let Me In. It occurs during a car chase, but that's all I'll say. If you know, you'll know. The shots were incredible. This is a masterclass in filmmaking. Is it too long? My left butt cheek would tell you yes. But was I bored? Absolutely not. I look forward to buying the Blu-ray and watching all the -the behind-the-scenes featurettes. This is a must-see movie and a worthwhile addition in the canon of Batman. On to the main attraction. 
Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fair, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Legally Blonde from 2001. So how'd I miss it? Well, I consider myself a modern man, very open-minded and accepting of all races, cultures, and creeds. But when this movie came out and I saw the ads, my first thought was, this looks like such a girly movie. So I didn't watch it, but it's garnered a cult following and a Broadway musical that I wanted to give it a chance. It was directed by Robert Luketic, who helmed Monster-in-Law, The Ugly Truth, and Killers. The screenplay was co-written by Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith, who scribed Ella Enchanted, She's the Man, and The House Bunny together. It was based on the novel by Amanda Brown. This is something to look out for. Elle Woods dons over 40 hairstyles and 30 scarves throughout the movie. So we're introduced to Elle Woods, senior at City University Los Angeles, majoring in fashion merchandising, and president of the Delta Nu sorority. She's primping and preening, getting ready for her date with her boyfriend, Warren Huntington III, where she expects to be getting engaged. Elle Woods is portrayed by Reese Witherspoon, who starred in Election, Mud, and won an Academy Award for Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role for Walk the Line. Her boyfriend is acted by Matthew Davis, who appeared in Blue Crush, Pearl Harbor, and the TV series Damages. On their date, Warner mentions that they've been having a lot of fun lately, but as he heads to Harvard Law School, he needs to start taking things more seriously. His parents expect a lot and pressures him in continuing the family tradition of becoming a senator. He says that he needs to be with a Jackie, not a Marilyn, and breaks up with her. Elle doesn't take it too well. Word gets around that she's been dumped. As her sorority sisters try to console her with many petties, she comes across an article in a hoity-toity magazine featuring Warner's brother and future wife and their burgeoning law careers. It sparks an idea. She's going to become a law student to win back Warner. She broaches the idea with her parents who initially dismiss it. Her father says that law schools are for people who are boring, ugly, and serious, while her mother reminds her that she was first runner-up at the Miss Hawaiian Tropic contest. Why would she throw away those achievements to do something so mundane? She asks her college advisor who, well advises her that even though she has a 4.0 grade point average, Harvard won't be impressed that she aced history of polka dots. But Elle will not be deterred. If she wants to get into law school, she'll need excellent recommendation letters from professors, a flawless admissions essay, and at least a 175 on the LSATs, which I'd never heard of until the Republicans wanted to see them for Katanji Brown-Jackson and no other Supreme Court justice nominee. Draw your own conclusions. Through hard work and determination, Elle achieves a 179 on the LSATs and is accepted into Harvard. Will her plan to win back Warner work, or will she find a higher calling in the practice of law? Here's a quote without context. I can't believe you just called me a butthead. I don't think anybody has called me a butthead since the ninth grade. Legally Blonde is a lighthearted movie. It's the type that you don't have to fully pay attention to. You can put it on in the background and always figure out where you're at in the story. 
It starts off with a very superficial outlook on what's important in life, status and image, but eventually gets to the core of our own being, which is self-worth. While the character of Elle appears as a dumb blonde stereotype to the outside world, she does have knowledge of certain subjects and puts a sales manager in her place who tries to put one over on her. She eventually uses those skills and applies them to law instead of fashion. I like that she didn't lose a sense of herself to fit in with the more serious members of the law program, even though she got a lot of flack from them for her West Coast sensibilities and style. They even had a rocky training montage of her becoming a better student, which was a nice touch. It has a strong supporting cast with Luke Wilson, who plays new love interest Emmett, Selma Blair as Warner's fiancé, Holland Taylor as the no-nonsense Professor Stromwell, Victor Garber as mentor Professor Callahan, Allie Lauder as murder suspect Brooke Taylor Wyndham, and Jennifer Coolidge as manicurist Paulette. There is also a special appearance by Raquel Welsh. I honestly didn't think I'd like the movie as much as I did. It does touch on some serious subjects, but doesn't lose the comedy gaze, and it was pretty funny, too. Now for a little trivial trivia. Reese Witherspoon and Selma Blair both appeared in Cruel Intentions. The cinematography was captured by Anthony B. Bridgmond, whose filmography includes The Sandlot, Candyman, and Tales from the Hood. The score was composed by Ralph Kent, who worked on the music for Election, Kate and Leopold, and About Schmidt. He also wrote the main theme to the television series Dexter. It was edited by Anita Brandt Burgoyne, who worked on A Kid in King Arthur's Court, Good Burger, and Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. The soundtrack features songs by Vanessa Carlton, Fatboy Slim, Lisa Loeb, and The Black Eyed Peas. It basically screams late 90s music. The runtime is 1 hour 36 minutes. It had a budget of $18 million and grossed $141 million at the box office. It spawned a sequel, Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde, as well as a Broadway musical. A third movie is currently in development. I give it 4 out of 5 stars. Take off half a star if you think it's a girly movie. Because it, it kind of is. If you've seen Legally Blonde and have opinions on the movie... Let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. We Are the World was a single co-written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie for the charity United Support of Artists for Africa, aka USA for Africa, which supplied relief aid for the 1983-85 famine. It was pretty unprecedented in that over 40 recording artists contributed to the song. Everyone I knew had the We Are the World poster in their bedroom, which featured all of the music industry stars and for some reason, Dan Aykroyd. One of the games me and my friends would play was who could name the most singers. Yeah, things were boring before the internet. But I remember they had a behind-the-scenes documentary, and I was fascinated by the recording process. This wasn't a completed work. You had singers suggesting certain harmonies and arranging the song on the spot. My favorite part of the single and the most memorable lines were by Cyndi Lauper. She was one of my favorite artists in the 80s, I would listen to the album She's So Unusual as I played with my He-Man figures in the living room. That's where the record player was. She had such a distinctive voice and unique, bold personality. I think most people wanted to be Madonna, but really felt like Cyndi Lauper. And that's a big compliment. She made it okay to be unusual. I was drawn to that. 
It probably helped that she was managing the WWF Women's Champion, Wendy Richter, at the time. But Cindy, along with Huey Lewis and Kim Carnes, sang on the bridge of the song, and I came across a video where they're working out their parts with Lionel Richie. With each take, Cindy gave different flavors of the lines, so much so that even Steve Perry from Journey pointed out how good she was sounding. Can't say the same for Kim Carnes. I mean, she's a good singer, but doesn't it hurt to listen to her? She's got that raspy voice. It sounds like every note coming out of her mouth is torturous for her. And she'll tease you. She'll unease you. All the better just to please you. She's precocious. And she knows just what it takes to make the pro blush. Can someone get her lemon tea? Alphonse, Alphonse. (laughs) But there's a very funny moment where Cindy's jewelry is clanking too much. It can be heard on the recording and she has to take off all her necklaces. And she's wearing like 30 to 40. But that's what makes Cindy Lauper so great. The behind the scenes of We Are The World is available in the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about This Is Pop, an eight-part documentary series where each episode focuses on a specific aspect of pop music and its influence. The Boys to Men Effect, about the Philadelphia group and their signature modern Motown sound, which opened the floodgates of boy bands in the 1990s. Auto-Tune, about the processor, which alters the sound of singers' voices, removing all character and passion. Stockholm Syndrome, about Sweden's influence over the music industry, from artists ABBA to Ace of Bass and producers Max Martin and Per Magnuson. When Country Goes Pop, about artists who have crossed over genres with their Western music. Hail Britpop, about the invasion from bands over the pond in the 90s, led by Oasis. Festival Rising, about the popularity of music festivals and performing in front of hundreds of thousands of fans. What Can a Song Do, about the importance of protest music shedding light on societal issues from discrimination to injustices. The Brill Building in Four Songs, about the songwriters of New York City who churned out the hits we know and love from the 50s and 60s. All of the episodes are well-made and engaging. Even if you think you might not be interested in a particular subject, the writers, directors, and talking heads tell the story very effectively. If you happen to live through these eras, it's a nice reminder of the sounds you grew up with. This Is Pop has been on for one season, eight episodes from 2020 to present. It's currently streaming on Netflix. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for all the reviews, rants, and randomness. He became friends with J.J. Abrams in their teenage years when a local public action... Action.
It was edited by Anita Brandt Burgoyne. Ber- oh boy. It was edited by Anita Brandt Burgoyne, who worked on a king in Kid who worked on a kid in Kids Arthur's Court. Ugh. Who worked on a kid in King Ar- Who worked on a kid in King Arthur's? Ah! Who worked on a kid in King Arthur's? Oh no! Who worked on a kid in King Arthur's? Oh, I stink. While her mother reminds her that she was first runner-up at the whole month at the she's precocious and she knows just what it takes to make the pro blush. <laughs> it's got to be one of those. <laughs> I can't do it again.